Welcome to the first official episode of Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's new podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening. Each week on this podcast, you can expect a quick wrap of the deal news of the week, followed by what we hope is a lively discussion with someone well-steeped in the world of mergers and acquisitions. For the first episode of the podcast, we wanted a guest who could explain why M&A is important or even what M&A is exactly for those of you who might be listening who aren't as familiar with this world, and yet at the same time be interesting to long-term M&A professionals and people that sort of watch this space. And that's why University of Michigan professor Eric Gordon will be joining us in just a few minutes. He taught classes on deal-making for decades and was an M&A lawyer before that. So he's been in the boardroom and also has sort of a nice broad perspective on why deals happen and why many of them ultimately fail. But first, let's get into a weekly segment we're calling What's the Big Deal?, where we hit on the week's most interesting M&A news. And for that, joining us for week one is Bloomberg's M&A managing editor and one of the most notable and prolific M&A reporters in the game, Jeff McCracken. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Notable and prolific. Thank you very much. So this week, we're talking hotels. Marriott International agreed to buy Starwood Hotels for $12.2 billion, creating the world's largest lodging hotel company. Marriott owns hotels including the Ritz-Carlton, Courtyard by Marriott, Starwood owns the W, the Westin, the St. Regis, and others. So, Jeff, was this deal a surprise? It, it was known for a very long time that Starwood was on the block. In fact, they came out in April and said, we've hired Lazard, one of the you know one of the most prominent uh, banks out there, to shop around and see if there's someone who wants to buy us. The, the buyer, I think, is the surprise that, that it was Marriott shocked a lot of people. Uh, as some of you may recall, CNBC had reported a couple weeks ago that Hyatt was in late-stage talks to, to get a deal done, and that didn't happen. And you know what? That is unfortunately common in our, in our game. We will report people that will be in late-stage talks, and sometimes just the, the story itself will prompt someone else to, to dive in. Um, we at Bloomberg had also reported some Chinese bidders were interested, but the Chinese often find themselves uh, getting in too late on these, uh, on these deals because before they can make a bid, they have to get approval from the Chinese government. So there were three different bidders, CIC and a couple others that wanted to make a bid, and they all had to wait around for the the central government to decide who was the right one to make a bid. So it's not a surprise Starwood got sold. It's a surprise perhaps that Marriott won. And and what sort of top-line headline logic behind doing this? You know, a lot of this is about Airbnb. Now, the hotel chains would like to deny that's the case, but the fact is Airbnb's valuations, I think at this point, are bigger than either Marriott's or Starwood's. It's well north of $20 billion. You know, you can't host a group at at, uh, an Airbnb house or at an apartment or what have you. However, they can cut into and have been cutting into the hotel space for a few years now. So the the rationale is we're going to need to consolidate and we're going to need we're going to see the Hyatt's and the Hilton's and the Starwood's and the Marriott's uh, Intercontinental, another another chain out there that's looking to do a deal. We're going to see consolidation among those guys probably in the next you know, six to 12 months. I think Airbnb's private valuation is something like $25 billion. This was a $12 billion deal. So, you know, and Starwood is a significant hotel company. Right, right. And we've had, you know, we've had other smaller hotel deals that have gotten done recently. A company called Strategic sold uh, a couple months ago to Blackstone. Uh, and Blackstone is a bit the, um, 
the king of, of, of the hill right now because they own or they owned Hilton and they have a big stake in Hilton. So you're going to see Blackstone do a lot in this space. Uh, I mentioned a company called Intercontinental a while ago. They own Holiday Inn, which might be one of the best known hotel brands out there. They're talking to their bankers right now because they've received so many inbound calls. They're talking whether they should go out and buy somebody, make some deals to make themselves bigger or put themselves up on the block. Now, I think they're a nine or $10 billion market cap. So it would be a large deal, perhaps larger than the Starwood one. But that's the situation every hotel chain is in. We got to buy something or we got to sell ourselves because we got to get bigger. Any idea if this is a good deal for consumers at this stage? Well, as someone who has Marriott points and Starwood points, I'm told the points will come together. So I'm, I am happy for so that. So more hotels for points. So yeah. that's a benefit. That's, that's a benefit. Those. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have, I believe they're going to have, uh, once once the deal gets done, they're going to have 1.1 million rooms, uh, 5,500 hotels. It's going to be, you know, probably in every corner of every nook of every uh, country you can think of. Whether that's a good thing for the consumers, I, Generally speaking, when these companies come together, you know they're going to cut costs. So if you work for one or the other, you know you're going to see some. That counts. sounds like good news. That's that's <laughs> tremendous news. Uh, no, it's uh, not always great news for them. I think for the consumers, it, th- there shouldn't be any you know huge difference. And in the um, as we were talking before, there are others out there that are competing with them. You know the the Airbnb and Airbnb. the businesses don't change. So I would imagine what the cutting costs probably come from is like the backroom stuff, right? Yeah, the, I, you know I've talked to some people in the kind of real estate M and A types in the past. And they've said in these hotel deals, there are more synergies than you can imagine, because once you own the hotel, you don't need another extra IR person at at the headquarters or an extra IT person. So you can add 100 hotels or several brands and keep basically the same footprint you had of, of HR, IT, corporate finance, et cetera. So what is what what's sort of the, the, the next deal here? Is it Intercontinental? I think Intercontinental is where people should keep an eye on. And I think the Hyatt and Hilton's, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody actually came back and tried to top Marriott and the Starwood deal. You know, 90-something percent of the time, deals don't get jumped. This is one of those times where the 5% uh, rule, if you will, could fit in because the the Hilton's and the Hyatt's and the others probably wish they had gotten in on this deal. And, and we apparently we already know that several of these companies were looking at. Exactly. So it wouldn't so shock it, anybody if they came back and someone offered 12 point something that's bigger than the, the offer uh, Marriott made. So we can see a bidding war potentially for Starwood here. Exactly. Uh, all right. Thanks, Jeff. We'll be following this one closely. Uh, I want to bring in Eric Gordon now. Eric is a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. He teaches courses on M&A, deal-making, initial public offerings and corporate governance and entrepreneurship. Before he was a professor, he was an M&A lawyer, so he's also been in the boardroom. Joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Eric, thank you very much for being here on our uh, debut episode of Deal of the Week. Oh, my pleasure. So look, Eric, I wanted to start off and, and wanted to have you on the show first to give us sort of a summary of, broadly speaking, why are we seeing so much M&A this year? And also, why do companies do this? You've taught a lot of classes on M&A. There are a lot of studies out there. I was just listening to uh, economist Catherine Mann talk about this on Bloomberg Television, how most M&A doesn't work, and it ends up being value-killing rather than value-creating for companies. And yet, 2015 is going to be a record-high year for M&A. So why are we seeing this so much this year, and why do companies keep doing this when statistics show that M&A isn't all that good for their companies? Well, hope springs eternal, and every CEO thinks that he or she is exceptional, that it's the other knuckleheads that uh, can't do M&A right, but that they can. But I, I, I break it down into drivers of M&A, 
and enablers. And, and we have the perfect combination now. We, we have drivers in place um, at a macro level and with respect to specific industries, and we have the enablers in place. So when, when that happens, you get the M&A boom as long as you have drivers and enablers working together. So what are the drivers and the enablers this year? Well, the drivers, the big driver uh, in the recent boom, a couple of them. One is this slow organic growth. It's really hard to grow organically. Uh, some companies uh, are in a slow sector. So I think of uh, Darden restaurants where the way they grew is uh, they bought Longhorn Steak and the Eddie V's. Some companies are just slow companies. They just don't seem to be able to drive for organic growth. Uh, you know, I think of uh, Yahoo, which just can't seem to grow. Uh, HP, uh, which can't seem to, to grow. We have kind of a running conversation with Corey Johnson about that. Um, in, in other cases, the companies, the driver is they're trying to play either technology or marketing catch-up. There's some change in technology or markets, and some companies are left behind. And, and how do you catch up? You, you buy a company. So think about what's going on in the switch to mobile or cloud. Uh, think about Dell uh, and EMC. Or on the pharma side, uh, the new technology of immuno-oncology. Caught a lot of pharma companies flat-footed, so they've run out and they've bought immuno-oncology companies. Or even more prosaically, Campbell Soup. It caught way behind in market changes and bought Garden Fresh. Um, and then sometimes it's, it's just pure CEO EGO. It's just CEO ego. Um, and, you know, that has a proud history. You go back to the LTV and ITT deals 30 and 40 years ago, Bill Agee at Bendix. Just tell us a little bit about that for people that don't know, Eric. What exactly happened in those deals and why is it an ego well, thing? Yeah, you had CEOs with really, really strong uh, personalities. Uh, Hal Janine at ITT, Bill Agee at Bendix, and they were just determined to build the biggest possible company, fly around in the biggest possible corporate aircraft, um, probably make the most money possible. Um, and they assembled companies that largely didn't make sense. Why did you have a hotel chain and a movie theater chain and, and, and international telecommunications? Uh, you couldn't even claim there were synergies. I, I, I don't know what you could claim. Uh, I guess you claimed diversification, which gave you some kind of insulation against changes in the economy, which, of course, turned out to be as much baloney as synergies usually are. Um, so often you see these strong CEO personalities, and you see companies put together that make no sense except my company is bigger than your company. Yeah, do you remember, was it Fortune Brands? That was one of the very first um, companies that I recall where an activist came in and successfully broke a company up. It was like 2010 or 2011, and they, were, they had Master Lock, then they had Titleist, and then they had Jim Beam. So <laughs> unless you were golfing and getting drunk and, and then locking up your stuff afterwards, it made no sense for those three very different consumer product business to, businesses to be together. And, you know, now they're, now they're three different companies and I think have done much better that way. But it, it seems like some of the remnants from, as you were saying, 30, 40 years ago had lingered up until just a couple of years ago until the, the activists who, for better or worse, I think have made a lot of these companies more efficient. But, but a lot of those things were still lingering up until just a couple of years ago. Yeah, and Jeff, I mean, you, you've seen the, the cycles. You, you see companies put together on the theory that the company will be more stable because it's diversified. That goes on for five or ten years. Um, and then you see five or ten years of people taking it apart and saying, 
let's focus. You know, if we're going to GE thing, if we're not going to be number one or number two, let's not do it. Um, and we don't we don't seem to learn from history. These these companies, uh, like Fortune Brands, these these companies rarely work for very long. Eric, is there a better way of doing this? In other words, I'm thinking about a situation where a company CEO is driven by ego, wants to run the biggest company he or she can, risks the company's future on this. They end up firing thousands of workers. It seems like the CEO maybe benefits and gets a nice little golden parachute after the deal doesn't work. But a lot of the workers underneath them, the employees, suffer. Is there a better way of doing this than the sort of the system we have in place right now? It seems that you need somebody outside the corporation to be sort of the break, the governor on the system. People inside the corporation, and I'm going to include the board of directors as being people inside the corporation because they are, for the most part, captured by the CEO. They don't, they don't seem to block this. It takes either activists who show up and say, we oppose this, uh, we'll vote against this, uh, or we'll try to take you over, or it takes a credit market, uh, takes a, people in a credit market to say no. The latter never happened. So it's it's these these activists who, as amusing or ugly as they can be, they seem to be the only folks with the power to to put the brakes on. I'm curious in your mind, especially for people that aren't as familiar with what activists are, this idea that these activist shareholders come in and they sort of publicly agitate and shake up company boards and push for M&A, there's definitely a contingent of people out there that say activism isn't good. These activists look for short-term gains, and they askew the long-term health of companies. Do you agree with that, Eric? Because it seems like what you were saying earlier was that actually the activists are sort of the only gatekeepers we have. Yeah, I agree with it, and uh, I agree with it without contradicting myself, uh, which is sort of a magic trick. But, But here's how it works. There are different kinds of activists. There are activists who do come in, look only at the short term, say, cut costs, which generally means fire people, pay me or borrow money, leverage up, borrow a lot of money, which you then use to pay out a dividend. I have a lot of stock, so I'll get a lot of, uh, I'll get a lot of money, do some buybacks at a higher price. So there is that kind of activist, and it's, it's hard to figure out what their social function is. I understand their profit function, but their, their social function remains a mystery. But there also are activists who do huge amounts of research, you know, produce a book about how Darden should operate more effectively. There actually are long-term activists who spend a year or more studying a company who are experts in a particular industry and who come in and, and are sort of the reality check um, to uh, management teams that are either lost in the past, don't want to face the reality of their own failures to keep up with things. So, so both statements are true. I mean, there are, there are activists who, you know, I would drop out the window and see how high they bounce. But there are other activists you, you want to cheer on because you just see, you see a great company wandering you know, possibly into oblivion.
You know, it's interesting as it seems like in the last couple of years, activists have gone from being mostly critics of the companies they buy into, you know, with, listen, you got to break up, you got to get rid of the CEO, we need new people on the board. And, and increasingly now, the strategy seems to be supporting, and I'm thinking of Valiant specifically, where you've got Bill Ackman and then uh, Jeffrey Ubbin over at Value Act that are basically supporting the company, you know, fighting a fight that may be more effective, might possibly have more use uh, with investors to say, listen, we should, this company is fine. They made a few mistakes here and there, but you should buy the stock and, and the shares will be back up where they were six months ago. Uh, so it's interesting that th- th- these activists are, in some respects, the best mouthpieces some of the companies can have or will have going forward. Yeah, and I suspect, you know, if you're a CEO, and, and I know some CEOs who've been involved with activists, you, you're not looking forward to that phone call. Hi, it's Bill Ackman, or, or hi, it's Dan Loeb. Um, you, you'd rather not be on their radar, um, but they often do bring to the table um, cover for you to do things that you should do, but for a variety of social and political reasons, you can't do. You can't do it in your hometown. You can't do it with folks who you came up with the ranks with for 30 years. It's mighty convenient to have a, a Dan Loeb, somebody like that around, who you, you can say, look, we got to make some changes. So th- there, are, there are actually a, a good number of instances where it's it's not the most comfortable partnership, but it's a, it's a strong working partnership between the CEO and the activist. A lot of that depends on the CEO, and a lot of it depends on the activist styles. You know, activists vary in how warm and cuddly they are. Eric, I want to ask you a question about M&A advice. You used to be an M&A lawyer. I would imagine a fair amount of our listeners are in sort of the advisory world in some capacity, banker, lawyer, etc. Is the system set up where advice is not as good as it should be. In other words, are bankers and lawyers pushing to get deals done at any cost because that's how they get paid? Or do you feel like the advice in general is solid in that lawyers and bankers uh, and, and, and strategic advisors are giving neutral advice, the best advice that they could be giving companies regardless of whether a deal gets through or not? So it's always tempting to think that deals are being pounded through because of the fee structure. So um, banks, investment banks as advisors, typically make one amount of money simply for advising and then a lot more money in in the so-called success fee if, if the deal happens. Less so with lawyers, but sometimes with lawyers. So there's a temptation to suspect that you push the deals. And of course, you know, in the old days, you know, Bruce Wasserstein was famously referred to as bit him up Bruce and would do supposedly whatever it took to get a deal done. I think there's still some of that happening, but I think less of it's happening and it's less effective. And here's why we have a lot smarter CFOs than we used to have. Um, CFOs in companies used to be not as sophisticated as they are now, and they used to play a much more subordinate role. CEOs used to talk directly with the investment bankers, and then CFOs were brought in basically to organize the scut work. And now the CFOs and the CEOs tend to be very close, uh, which means that it, it isn't a partner at an investment bank calling a buddy who's the CEO and pushing for something without anybody else being around. So I think compared to 20 and 30 years ago, the, the, the advice actually is better, and the companies are more resistant to bad advice. 
I, I mean, I can remember sitting in conference rooms and thinking, uh, you know, this CEO is, we're not, we're not going to let this guy out of the room until he agrees to meet. Um, you, you don't see that happening now. Really interesting insight. Eric Gordon, a uh, professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Good luck to Michigan football team for the rest of the year. Uh, I know you guys have my former team's coach, Jim Harbaugh, now as a suffering 49ers fan. I wish you good luck, but I suppose with a tinge of bittersweetness, that's a word. All that matters is beating Ohio State. And in a Jeff, couple another weeks. I'm surrounded by Michigan people. You are indeed. Go blue. Thanks, Eric. My pleasure. So that's it for official episode number one of Deal of the Week. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, you can expect more Bloomberg reporters and MA professionals who are doing deals real time and who can reflect on decades of experience as we continue with this podcast. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And definitely take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. And I also want to thank Jeff McCracken, my boss. Jeff is at JC McCracken on Twitter. And feel free to let either of us know as well what you guys think of the podcast. Uh, We will see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Alex.